This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount. Today we're talking about God as a verb because, you know, um, we have no idea what God is and because it's beyond space and time and our minds don't travel too well beyond space and mind unless we're on psychedelic drugs or something. We, we don't really get that much access to beyond space and time. So the so we don't know what God is and and certainly God doesn't have any names. You know, there's there's no name for God. That's why one of the best words for God is the word God because, you know, uh, there's seats up here, seats there. Um, the word God means absolutely nothing and and literally the word God means absolutely nothing because the only thing that is absolutely nothing is whatever precedes the world of something and so God's name means absolutely nothing <laughs> I'm glad you thought that was profound <laughs> everyone else in the room besides my regular students are like what the hell is he talking about <laughs> so God's name means absolutely nothing <laughs> literally absolutely nothing because the only thing, time there was ever absolutely nothing was before there was something and so therefore that's what we we use the word God to to be a symbol to of that which our mind could never think of because your mind can't think of absolutely nothing nevertheless there are lots of names of God in Hebrew and all those names are verbs they're just action words because because the names of God are how God chose to create this world, and we know these names in order to know how to relate to God. And, you know, you have a name too. What's your name, nice lady? Bela. Bela. So we have a name to refer to you, and, and that's helpful. And so there's a reference to you, but our, like if we put you in an MRI, would there be on the screen the word Bela like a million times? Not even one time, because you're not Bela. It's a name used to refer to you, and that's helpful, but it doesn't tell us much about your essence. Hebrew names do actually tell of the essence. Our sages say that when you give a name to a child, it's one of the last three forms of prophecy. Not that the parents know what they're doing, they're just naming the child, but there's a certain prophetic nature to naming a child. Let me make a bracha, baruch and so uh, the other two forms of prophecy besides uh, naming a child are, um, are insane people. Have pro- have, uh, they're tapped into that, um, which is kind of funny because if you think about it, we're all stuck inside an illusion. Prophets are cutting out of the illusion to get in touch with reality. So we call it the insane people are the ones who's, who are actually in touch with some reality, you know. A little bit of the reality. We're in touch with none of it, so we're called sane. They're in touch with some of it, so they're called insane. Go figure that out. <laughs> How did they wind up with the word insane? But uh, but it does underline the fact that we that those of us who want God to talk to us, you know, you know, there's always that person at the hotel saying, "Oh God, if you're there, please, you know, just say something." You know, they they don't realize that that's not going to be good for you. You know, you're going to be brushing your teeth on your forehead. You know, after that, you're just not going to do so hot. We have places for people who God talks to. Okay, and so so even though there's people like wishing God would speak to them, it's not a good idea. You know, you, you're going to be super super careful with uh, with uh, these kind of things. And anyway. Anyway, God's essence has no name, but all the names are verbs. And we use these names a lot, so it's important we understand them. And that's what we're going to do today, is we're going to understand the names that we use. And maybe we'll dabble into some names we don't use so much. We'll see how that goes. Okay? Yes, sir? What was that last third uh, form of prophecy? The last one? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, you can sit uh, right there. That's a nice spot. Um, So the... Forms of prophecy. Oh, the last form of prophecy is um, is children before they're three have. Uh, but God doesn't let them speak much. So, and the younger they are, the more connected they are to the prophecy. Um, there's still a seat right there for you. 
That's for you. Is that in a seat? Is that? Yeah, there's a seat right there. Thought maybe I was hallucinating. He just doesn't look at it. Okay, so. I feel like there's one more the Talmud listed for prophecy. Whatever. Naming children. And therefore, if you have a Hebrew name, and I suggest everyone has one, and when you have a Hebrew name, it kind of tells you something about you. It may tell you your test, or it may tell you your proclivities. Um, some people's names, like for example, there's people who are named Simcha, which means joy, who have a tremendous test. Tremendous test with joy. I've, I, I knew a guy named Simcha who was a very depressed guy. And uh, it was really rough being named Simcha. And you imagine it, when you're depressed and everyone's saying happiness to you. Mm-hmm. Happiness. Happiness. Just like... <laughs> and mine's not... Mine's pretty rough, too. My name's Yom Tov. You know, good day. Yeah, well, what if it's not? <laughs> you know, I have a name change. So, but, but my name goes really well with me. I'm, I'm generally having a good day. But it, it took me a couple of years to get there, and not to mention reading the book that saved my life, which I really think everyone on the whole planet should read, and it takes an hour. But it literally saved my life. It was called uh, You Can Be Happy No Matter What by Richard Carlson. You can be happy no matter what. When you, if you order it on Amazon, order 10 copies, because you're just going to be happy to hand it out to everybody, because it's really a, a, a lifesaver. Um, anyway, and then, so there are people who are tested by their names, and then there's people who that is their proclivity with the Hebrew name. And when a parent names their child their Hebrew name, they're just kind of winging it, but, but there's something about it. And there's heavy stuff with names. We don't mess with names. And there are people who are critically ill, like right now, you guys can all say this name. We add it. We do add names when someone's critically ill. So, you guys want to try a name? Just of one of our dear Aish rabbis who, who had uh, some setbacks. Uh, he's doing better now, but we're still majorly praying for him. He's in rehab and stuff. His name is Yosef. That was the ad. Yosef Elimelech Ben Yehudis for a Fushalema. So, okay, and that's adding names. Now, God's names. So we're going to go through some names. Let's see if i got any pens here. Anyone seen any markers around? Behind you. Behind you. Okay, great. So we're going to do a couple names. Um, we're going to start with, uh, I'm going to use a lot of spaces between letters just to make room for, uh, as if there was a letter there, just because it's... Uh, <clears throat> Just because it's, uh, you're not allowed to erase certain names, so we're putting a little space. So the upper line, upper line represents the spiritual, and the lower line represents the physical. Okay, and this is the, and we pronounce this name, uh, we pronounce this name like this. And I'm going to put oi like that, because it's an actual oi. And so you'll, you'll meet people who will say nai, you know, because they just didn't learn it properly, or their family said it that way, but it's not. It's because uh, underneath the, uh, there's a pasa underneath the nun. If it were a, f- sorry, a comets, if it were pasa, just a dash, then it would be nai. Because it's a comets, it's noi. Okay, and uh, and that name of God also very important to because if you if you anyone here go to Chabad houses when they're so the, so sometimes they'll say Adi instead of Ado, it's Ado, Ado, and sometimes they'll say Di, but not all of them. Like uh, I recently was at a minion where the Chabadnik leading it was saying Ado, and I went up to him and I said, "You you say it's so good for a Chabadnik." He says, "That's right because I fixed it." So I could say it right. But there, there's certain groups that'll say, Chabad's one of those that'll say, Ade and then Noi. So it's, but it's Ado. It's a Cholom there. Clear? Now, I'm not saying they should switch necessarily, but this we talked about last week is tradition also means a lot. So when there's a tradition coming down the line, so then it's uh, different. But you'll notice that even people who, uh, 
Like, for example, we know the Yemenites have the most accurate Hebrew because they were a 2,500-year time capsule in Yemen. And so when the, there are people, when they say Shema, because there you have a Torah commandment to say those words, Shema Israel. So there are people who will pronounce that like a Yemenite, even though that's not their tradition. And they keep their tradition. They do everything wrong. <laughs> not like Yemenites. And, but when it comes to Shema, now I'm doing a Torah commandment, well, how do they say Shema? So the Dalit of Ado, of Echad, for example, becomes a soft Dalit, something like Echad, and it's, um, whatever, they're more careful with these, these uh, things, because they're doing a Torah commandment, they want to get it done right, and so the best we've got is the Yemenites for proper Hebrew pronunciation. Yeah, she's all excited because she's Yemenite, apparently. Which side's Yemenite? Your father or your mother? Mom. Dad, dad. Dad, dad. Dad, which is the tradition. Tradition comes through the father. Judaism through the mother, traditions through the father. Yeah? Uh, so if the Yemenites are the ones that have the correct pronunciation, um, why during prayer would you not forego tradition to do it in the way that we know is the more correct? Um, it's a slippery slope foregoing tradition in general. You don't want to mess around with tradition too much. Probably just because it's a slippery slope. You know, you, you, you stop doing this, then you stop doing that, then you stop doing this, you stop doing that, because traditions aren't true. They're just traditions. So, so what happens if you're already starting to lop off the stuff that's not really true? I mean, it's not really in the Talmud. It's not stuff that our sages said, but it's just your family's way of, like, cutting off the ends of a challah. <laughs> you know? It's, it's like... They don't eat the end of the challah, you know, because they're afraid it'll cause forgetfulness or something. So, so if, you know, if you start lopping off everything that, that isn't really toward true in your tradition, you're going to wind up with no real tradition from your family. Use the traditions of your family. It's nice to d- distinguish them, maybe for your children, so they don't one day say, why are you feeding me this malarkey, you know, that some gigantic fat man is coming down a chimney. You know, like... Like, what else are you saying that's not true? You know, so the, um, so it might be good to distinguish it for your children that we have this tradition, even though it's not necessarily going all the way back to our sages, you know, so we can, so we can, uh, we don't have to do that. Yeah. And how do we, like, differentiate between tradition and superstition? You distinct, you differentiate it. If it's really superstitious, like, like, uh, if, if they say something bad's going to happen to you, <coughs> That's superstitious, I suppose. And if it's just, this is the way we do it, then that's tradition. Yeah? So, anyway, but I like walking under ladders. I think, <laughs> I think because we have a Torah commandment that it's forbidden to be superstitious. Did you know that? One of the 613 prohibits superstition. It's really weird, you know, because some of our, some people, you know, for example, Sephardic people are much more superstitious than Ashkenazic people. But they've also been hanging out in Islamic countries. Islamic people are very superstitious. Ashkenazic people are not very superstitious. Hope you guys enjoyed your soundbite. Go, go, enjoy. So Ashkenazic people are not very superstitious, but they got them too. They also got superstitions. So anyway, but anything that's a custom in your family isn't necessarily superstition. And there's certain things that are superstitions and you you definitely want to cut with that is worth cutting with. Cut with the superstition because we have a separate commandment, no superstition. Because it's a super where do superstitions come from? It's pagan. Superstitions are pagan things. And they they may even be true. But your job's just spend the day walking under ladders. Like just find every construction site and walk under their ladders as a proud Jew saying I'm breaking superstition and <coughs> I'm going to walk under those ladders you know, and step on the cracks and the pavement and stuff. Okay. Anyway, that's God's name like that. And, and we'll get into it a little bit. In order to do several names, we're not going to get into it too much. But um, it starts with obviously another name of God, which is the Yud and the He. And Yud and the He, like when you say, for example, to praise God is Hallelujah. And then the Yud and the He, Hallelujah, which is the name of God. So, so it's made already of a name, and it's got its full name. So it's a name, and then it's the full name, which is the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He. The Yud and the He represent, um, represent uh, the upper unity 
of God because God's totally one. But down here, he's like broken up into chairs and tables and jackets and sweaters and people and, and all this stuff, meaning God gets broken up into the physical world. And that's why we say at the end of Aleinu L'Shabeh, we say, Bayom Hahu, when Mashiach comes, not only will God be one above, but his, the whole thing will be one. Meaning even where the, where the world breaks down his name into the world of multiplicity, will become one with God. So the whole name is God being totally one. This part, sorry, but that will only be at the end of days in Mashiach times. And Adam and Eve lived that way. When, before Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, they lived with God's name one, meaning their physical environment was translucent, like your fingernails are translucent. They saw through it. They saw the nail. You see the nails. You see you have nails. But you can also kind of see through the nails. So, so too, the physical world that Adam and Eve lived in was a, it was a world where Yud and He and Vav and He were one. Now they ate from the fruit. When they ate from the fruit, now suddenly they could distinguish things. Now, obviously, it's talking about a, um, it's talking there, the distinguishing between good and evil, because they ate from the tree of the distinction between good and evil. That good and evil really is here is, is an archetype of all distinction. You get that? Like, when you live where everything's of God, so there's no, there's no real distinctions. So the distinction between good and evil is really the archetype of distinction in general. And that's how you know anything, by the way. Because, like, when you were a little infant, looking around the world like this, after the birth, you didn't know nothing. Everything was one, in a way, for you. But what happened, eventually you realized there's a dad, and there's a mom. Dad keeps throwing me up and down. Yeah, mom's got the goods. And, and you know, and you start to distinguish grass from pavement, because grass is not painful when you fall. Pavement is. Start distinguishing gravity when you rolled off the couch. You know, you're, you're slowly developing distinctions. Then you, they send you to school, which further distinguishes things, like numbers and words. And, and, then they, and then eventually someone could get a PhD where they, you know, years later, where they're now giving very fine distinctions in a particular field because they're going to want you to have distinguished one thing deeply, distinguished one thing. And so this was the tree Adam and Eve ate from. Interestingly, we, that's the world of multiplicity, of distinction. But, but all those distinctions are coming really out of this oneness, which is Hashem's name being one, and which we will get to, please God, someday. But we do remind ourselves of it every week when we use a multi-wick candle and Havdalah that burns into one. And what do we look at in the multi-wick candle? Our fingernails. To, which are translucent to remind us that we're he- that we came from it before the eating of the fruit in the Garden of Eden, and we're going to it in the end of days. We're going back to this Bayom Hahu Hashem Echad up above, Ushmo Echad down below in this world, because this world's all made of His names. The whole world's made of names. Like there were there no names, no world. Okay, the whole world's made of God's names. And that's why it's, you know, so it's also verbs and nouns, but they're not nouns for God, they're nouns for our world. Meaning that everything's made of those names. And so, but those names are broken up into all the details of the world. Um, If I can give you this as a background thing to think about during the class, that, that what we're doing right now is Jewish theology. This is not something that atheists mess with. Okay? They don't mess with this stuff. You understand? All the atheists, Sam Harris, or, or all the famous guys, or Dawkins, or uh, what was that guy's name? Uh, the paraplegic physicist? Hawkins. Hawkins. They, they, don't, they don't know the first thing about anything I'm saying right now. Nothing. Like, zero. So you should just have in mind that Whenever these highfalutin, or what I call them the high priests of secularism, atheists, are talking, the, the, the holes they poke in God are always Christian theology holes. You understand? So therefore, as a Jew, like, a Jew never hangs his lifestyle on, on geniuses poking holes in theology that you hardly need to be a genius to poke a hole in. We don't need a genius to do that. So... So the uh, so the, w- here we're talking about 
actual Jewish theology, which no one messes with here. You just have to know a lot to mess with this stuff. And so, now, I'm not saying they wouldn't try. Maybe they'd try, but it would take them years of study to get to the point where they can have an have a, uh, intellectual conversation in Jewish theology, because it, it really takes some time to get to that point. And if any one of them get to that point, maybe then we could have a discussion. Um, there was something else I was going to say about it. Oh, yes, just the science thing we were just talking about is, is just there's something that you probably don't realize, that in Gentile theology throughout a Gentile history with God. God, when you don't know science, like if you don't understand your environment, so all those questions, you, you there's a God, so we don't need an answer because the answer is God. If you don't understand gravity and you don't understand the star systems and you don't understand all these things, well, I don't understand all that stuff. So, uh, so here we got two seats right here, ladies. So I don't understand any of this stuff. So God... God. And so what happens? Now, Jews, tell me, is the Jewish theology based on the fact that we don't understand anything? Is that why we have our theology? Because we don't understand anything? Not even, at all, not even a little, nothing, zero. None of our theology has to do with us lacking understanding. Now, there's plenty of lack of understanding. Even to this day, there's tons of lack of understanding. That has nothing to do with why we have our theology. Our theology is part of a prophetic line, whatever happened at Sinai, you know, all that stuff. Ever since then, we've had this theology. And the, um, there's nothing to do with answering questions with the word God for every question I have. That is not it. So what, happens in the, what happened in the Western civilization when the scientific revolution hit? And all of a sudden, they are describing things with formulas and proofs and understanding. And you know what I mean? When they started to really get the galaxy and the solar system and all that stuff. What happens when you do understand stuff? What happens? What do you get rid of? God. God. You get rid of God because we don't need God to explain it. We explained it. And once again, you'll find Jews who actually believe that the understanding of science is somehow in conflict with God. When really the Jewish perspective, when it comes to theology, is that, uh, sorry, the, when it comes to Jewish theologians, our perspective of science, we love science, first of all, we're crazy about science. Why? Because science shows the perfection, the precision, the efficacy of God. It just, the math works out there. And it's just the more science you know, the more you get in awe of the creator. Because God was never there to fill empty blanks. That was not where our theology came from. That was the Gentile theology, was to fill up those empty blanks. So, therefore, knowing science is in conflict with God. Whereas for us, knowing science shows the, how gorgeous God is. Because now we, see, we can see the detail that of God's, we see the detail of God's world. One last seat right there if you want it. Okay, now, everybody. One question. What's your name? Brad. Hi, Brad. I'm Yom Tov. <laughs> nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Say, take care of it. Hit it, Brad. Uh, my question is, at what point does, uh, do we start filling in the gaps of like, oh, that's what science has. Old Jews have been saying that all, all along. And we're just jumping to say, oh, well, that's what we've been saying the whole time. Like where, like where is it? Just uh, like blowing smoke around. You know what I mean? That part I didn't get. Blowing smoke around. When, what's that? Uh, what's that saying? Mean? I guess that I mean that we're uh, or nothing. My question remains. Okay, fine. Blowing, blowing smoke. So yeah. So the um, our, our we've been even though we're amazing at science as Jews, we're also pretty lousy at it. <laughs> Meaning, if if you don't have a telescope, you're going to have very limited science going on with the cosmos. You understand? So, on the one hand, we have great stuff, you know, like, obviously, you know, when you're looking in Talmud, do anyone know when calculus was created? Anyone know the history of math? Calculus was discovered? 1670s, 1660s. Something like that, 1600s, somewhere around then. So, I could show you a page in Talmud that's only understandable with calculus. 
And we know the Talmud dates back already to the destruction of the first temple, which is to the second temple, which was 2,000 years ago. And you need calculus to understand that stuff. So on the one hand, we're amazing at it. We also, you know, NASA spent however many millions of dollars in years to figure out the exact lunar cycle, which is super important to us. And today's the new moon, by the way, so happy uh, month year. Happy Chodesh. Chodesh Tov. But, they, but we really need that lunar cycle perfect. And even with NASA's number, after the millions they spent and the time they spent, they missed it by, uh, like, you know, it was .000, whatever, numbers, a bunch of numbers. So they missed it by one of these, like, fractional numbers and actually recorrected when we, when I guess some Jews told them that we're a little, we think you're a little off, and they recalculated it and found out that we were right. How would we know that? And we've known this forever. Like, we've known it a really long time. So on one hand, our science is good. The other hand, our science is lousy because we haven't had any of the materials necessary to have great science. And the rabbis go with science, not with dogma. So that our tradition is if the science shifts, like we suddenly get a new understanding, we go with that in almost every circumstance. I'm sure there's anom- anomalies where we don't go with it. But when science develops a greater understanding or something, that's what we go with. Because we're never claiming to be scientists. Never claiming that. Clear? But we do have traditions, and we have had geniuses who figured a lot of stuff out. So we're good and we're bad at science. Nice. Okay. Um, now, Yud, it, Yud represents... Oh, sorry. This name represents the ten spheros. Now, that's going to be really hard to explain to you guys on one foot. But it represents the ten spheros. So the Yud is Chochmah. The He is Bina. The Vav is, is Chesed Gevur Tiferes Netzach Hod Misod. And then the final He is Malchus. So those are the, those are the ten spheros. Although if you really hear, heard me say that, it really was nine. Because mm-hmm. I didn't do Das, I didn't discuss Das. But that's Chochman Bina, and then Chesed Gevur Tiferes Netzach Hod Yisod, and Malchus. Those are the ten spheros. So when you're saying the name of God, those who have studied how God... These ten beams that God beams in creation. So if you understand those ten beams and you start saying God's name slowly and carefully, you can actually go th- run through the whole ten spheros while you're doing it. We don't need to be worried so much about that right now. When we use this name of God, what we're mainly doing is we're having in mind that this is, the, this is a God beyond space and time. That's one thing. Beyond space and time. Um, it's also God as projector. Uh, J or G there? J, right? E or O? That's God as projector. And, um, and it's also um, God as causer. So this is a male name. It's a male name. All mysticism has causer and receiver in every mystical tradition. Uh, the physical world also only has male and female if you look around the room. Um, that's all we offer is male and female. And, but it's literally all, that's all there is, not only in the people in the room, that's all there is in the fabric and your clothing that's woven together and the buttons on my sweater and, the, and the, what's screwed your tables together and the hinges on the windows and the door, and, and there's nothing you're going to be looking at in your entire life that's not going to be either male or female. Like, that's all you'll ever see is, is male and female. And so you know creation's getting mixed up when people are getting mixed up about male and female. Yeah. That means our creation's getting mixed up, which happened at the time of the flood. It says that, that the whole creation was getting mixed up. It goes so far as to say that the two-by-twos that went into Noah's Ark the two-by-twos, were only the species that didn't intermate. There were actually intermating species. <laughs> Things got so confused that even species were interacting with each other, and they were not allowed on the boat. Yeah, there was a, there was a guard at the boat. Just kidding. I think those animals just didn't hear the call. And they had lost their intuition. Hint, hint. So, okay, so this is also God as causer. Okay. It's also, um, next is, I mean, there's a lot here. There's also master. And that's why we use the term, what's an adon? It's a master. 
And that's the term we actually use. We're not allowed to say this word. This word's one of the ineffables. It's, uh, we have words we're allowed to say. We have words we're not allowed to say. Names we're allowed to say. Names we're not allowed. This name we're never allowed to say. And you are allowed to say the Yud and the hey, like we said before. After, at the end of Hallelujah, you're allowed to say that. But, uh, but putting it all together, it's one of the ineffable names. This is a super high name. And we're not allowed to mess with it. We're not allowed to say it. No pronouncing it whatsoever. And the... Uh, and um, now, there is a question, were the Kohanim allowed to say it? My sense is they would have been, because they were allowed to, the high priest was allowed to say the 72-letter name. He's certainly allowed to say this one, I imagine. But, you know, I never, never studied it, so I don't want to say it with any authority of whether they were. But I, my sense is that they were allowed to say this name. Um, anyway, but it's also master. And, and, and then it also... The beyond space of time is the, how it's made up, because it's made up of these letters, which are the makeup of the words, of the words, um, was, <coughs> is, and, uh, and will be. Oops. Which is haya, hove, and yihyeh. Was, is, and will be. Okay, was, is, and will be, and the so these three names represent God beyond space and time. Meaning these three makers are was, is, and will be are beyond space and time. And the yud and the hey and the vav and the hey. When we say that name, we're to have in mind something totally outside. Physicality, something beyond the physical. Good? So, start saying it much slower, please. When you say it, slow it on down. Because that's, that's a lot to be dealing with when you're saying the name. And so many people just send it out. I mean, I blew it on my water. I, didn't, I don't think I had even one of those in mind. Not even one of them when I made my blessing on the water. So, like, I, I, lo- I lost that opportunity. So maybe in my after-blessing, I can uh, have it in mind. You definitely want to, at least once a day, twice a day, um, if not all day, having it in mind. Um, in my shul, when I went to my shul the first time, when people would leave the shul, if, after three hours of our ecstatic prayers, I'm part of an ecstatic prayer group, with hundreds of men who do ecstatic prayer together. It's really something. And the, uh, anyway, when I first got to the shul 26 years ago, they, um, we used to have a court of three at the end of synagogue. We had to have a court of three unexcommunicate you for having used this name without thinking about what you were saying. Meaning, Meaning, on a Kabbalistic level, like you get ex- spiritually excommunicated for blowing this name by saying it without thinking about it. So, so we would actually have a court at the end of every minion, and pe- and and the court would say to you, "Mutterlach, mutterlach, mutterlach," three times to let you know that you're back in, you're back in, like it, it recommunicates you to the spiritually. So, uh, you know, since I did that on my water, we might as well try it. Uh, yeah, can I get three Shomer Shabbos men in the room? Any, can you raise your hand if you're Shomer Shabbos and male? Okay. And these three look great. Okay. Can you guys give me three Mutterlachs, please? <laughs> Together, you're going to say Mutterlach, Mutterlach, Mutterlach. Mutterlach, Mutterlach, Mutterlach. Clean. <laughs> can you three say it for the room? Say it for everybody. Yeah. Together. No, you can just say it. One, two, three. Mutterlach, mutterlach, mutterlach. Everyone take a breath. I feel so much better. But these days, 26 years later, no one's doing that anymore. It's like, maybe the Rebbe will sometimes ask three people to do it. He's, he's pulled me in to do it, like... He's the Rebbe, you know, so, so he's the last one who even thinks about such stuff. Um, but what is really important for all of us is to, is to meditate on the name of God. Uh, try in the mornings, 
uh, once a day, just meditate on the name of God. You don't have to say anything, just meditate on it. And, uh, and learn the Ten Spheros. I have a lot of stuff online teaching the Ten Spheros in detail, so look those up. Okay, next name. Next name we're going to do, and I'm going to do a little pictorial for it. Imagine this is the whole space-time continuum here. This is the whole expanding universe, okay? So our, our Earth is, uh, let's say this is, our, this is our galaxy. Inside that dot is our solar system. And inside that dot's our Earth. And inside that dot's our, us in Jerusalem, okay? But this is, that dot's just the galaxy, the whole Milky Way of our galaxy. Okay, and it's the expanding universe. Now, I'm going to draw you inside here, not to scale, obviously. Okay. There you are inside there, and um, you're in kind of a weird pose here. But um, anyway, that's you inside there, and and this name Yudenheim Vavenheim. Well, let's go a little further. What we're going to do is we're going to make these squiggly lines represent the Yudenheim and the Vavenheim. Okay, but they're not just the Yudenheim and the Vavenheim. They're just the infinite God, which is beyond finite. You know what? I love the name infinite because if it's truly infinite, where does it also have to be? Infinite. Infinite. Meaning, if it's unlimited by space and time, well, this picture limited it. Do you see what happened? Like, this is one of the most amazing things, everyone. I don't know how much science people are here, but, but people don't ever sit and contemplate that once you start talking infinite, you're automatically saying that this world's an illusion. Because if it's truly, if there truly is an infinite, that means that this physical world would be a, a subset or a subordinate or a projection of that infinite. Because if the infinite, what's the definition of infinite? Well, there's a mathematical one. It's like if I count one, two, three, four, mathematically it'll go infinite till infinity. You know, I'll just keep going. That's the mathematical infinite. But then there's the philosophical infinite, which is also in the dictionary, which means unlimited by space and time. So in talking about it, do we then limit the unlimited? Well, right now we've limited the unlimited. Yeah. In, in, not in just in talking about it. In the, our, our, um, the world we apprehend automatically limits it to outside our world. Because I can't, obviously, apprehend the infinite. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, I can't help but be a, a uh, how do you say, kofer in English, a, a heretic. Yeah. Heretics, someone who says there's no God, we're all heretics ultimately because because we can't help but put God outside reality. And this is why women, by the way, are less heretical than men are. Today they're just as heretical as men are. But but not obviously women who are connected to tradition. They're they're still connected. But but today, I'm sorry, men are always pretty heretical. Uh, we don't have a very strong gene for. The, this kind of stuff, and this for for recognizing God in the world, and that's why we have tefillin. We put a black box of, with God's name right over this hole where the baby soft spot is, which is called the fontanelle, which I like. That's kind of English and Hebrew together, the fountain of God, fontanelle. So we put we put the fount, we put the black box over the fontanelle and the fountain of God. Which where's that sit? It sits on the neurons. The neurons are atheists because your neurons automatically you can't help it. You put God outside. You can't help but limit God to outside creation, which is not heretic, actually. You know what it is? <laughs> it's religious, meaning religions generally, religions out there, not all of them, but some religions are pagan, but there's religions that believe there's one God. You ever heard of that? Like Christians, they all believe there's one God. Yeah? So that's religion. Religion believes in one God. Yeah, that's not, Judaism does not believe in one God. Judaism believes that this infinite being is also where? In finite. In finite. Which is not that belief in one God. Because belief in one God is you're here, it's out there. Whereas the true hardcore, meaning that's softcore monotheism, hardcore monotheism isn't the belief in one God. (coughs) That there's one God just comes naturally. But rather Judaism is the belief that God is one. Now watch what happens here. Can you hit the light switch, please? Top button. Just touch it once. I just decided to, like, 
play with the contrast. Because think about it, if we could get it pitch black in here, you'd be in the oneness. But I can't get it pitch black because we have windows here. Anyway, but this is... You can turn it back on now. This is what's called... This is hardcore monotheism. And there's something amazing that only religions talk about the one God, you know, and they're, and they're obviously, uh, you know, they're obviously pretty vicious about it because once you start making stuff up, now you got to defend it. You know how it is when you're saying something that's not quite true, you get more aggressive than the person you're arguing with. They generally, if you know you're talking about something true, you stay chill. When you're already defending something that's not really a real position, but it's a made-up position, so outcome machetes and, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, witch trials and you, you name it, you know, they're going to start they're going to start enforcing things on us. Whereas in Judaism, Judaism is what's called hardcore monotheism. It's not the belief that there's one God, it's the belief that God is one. Indivisible oneness, undifferentiated oneness, absolute oneness. And that requires absolutely zero enforcement. Why? Because, well, think about it. If it's before space and time, that means it's not made of nothing. Well, how, how, you know, how aggressive do you got to get defending nothing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just, aggression would never come into the picture. Like, you're just never, ever, ever pushing your religion on anyone if you're not into religion. Because we're not into religion. We're not pushing dogma. We're not pushing ide- man-made ideas and trying to get everyone to cower underneath our power. But rather, we're talking about a being that's not made of anything. So it certainly doesn't require you to get too excited about it when someone denies its existence. And 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 it's like the Truman Show, you know. You guys all think you're indoors right now, and out these windows is outdoors. Not exactly. Okay, this is indoors. That's indoors. You've never been outdoors because you've always been somehow inside. You're inside it. You've never been outside it. Which is super cool, too, because now you don't have to be so fearful. I mean, I know your parents probably overprotected you, and you're probably afraid of just literally everything. Um, you know, I, I lucked out that I had zero protection growing up. And thank God, like, the nearest pedophile lived probably, like, ten zip codes away from our super rich community. So we, like, I was, I was protected by the creator in an area that, where there just was no crime or, or weirdos. But the, um, but it really allowed me so much in my life, and and therefore be really careful not to be too careful with your children, okay? And protect them from weirdos, but otherwise let them get get let them get bumps and bruises, and let them get scraped up a bit, and and learn the contours of reality, mm-hmm. so that they have some courage later when they have to make a living, or or they have to have a child, or it's time to get married. Like they should be courageous people. The only way to create courageous children is to let the world push back on them a bit. And the only way to have the world push back is you've got to push. You've got to push. If you push a bit, it'll push back. And you start to get to know the, where you live. And, and you, you, now you have real courage as opposed to just being full of anxiety all the time. So be careful not to helicopter parent your children. Don't, don't be a hovercraft. Uh, but but super vigilant from weirdos because it seems I don't know what it is. It seems like there's more weirdos than when I grew up. You know, weirdos seem to be a dime a dozen these days. But then again, it could be maybe the observant community has more weirdos because because there's uh, they, you can generally find a correlation between uh, there's generally a correlation between uh, extreme positions and. And weird stuff going on. Like when people get start getting extreme positions, that's generally where you find the weird stuff happening. And so, it could be that 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 we have a, a larger share of weirdos hanging around the observant community. And it, it also doesn't help that I meaning it's good that there's that people have to be sexually chaste till marriage in Judaism. That's a very very good thing, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have its fallout of having strange expression. It might have some strange expression in the way it might get expressed in our generation. Now, obviously, we should, have ro- we should all be rolling back the age of marriage 
you know, I understand, you know, in the 1950s, 60s, they moved marriage age up to 18, 19, 20, Litfish 20, 21, 22, 23. I know they moved it up, but they should definitely be reeling it back down in this generation because there's, there's anyone staying single that late is going to get themselves in some trouble. Either that or they're going to be acting, you know, they're just, it's, they're going to be inappropriately forcing themselves into chastity. Meaning, being good for too long is also not healthy. And God did not create our bodies and our bodies' urges for uh, not to be expressed. They are supposed to be expressed. Just they're supposed to be expressed appropriately. And since we're living in this, like, the, probably the, I mean, for sure in my lifetime, the most extremely sexual time ever. But uh, since we're living in an extremely sexual time, so then we have to be much more cognizant <coughs> much more cognizant of, of what Torah tradition for thousands of years had to be the age of marriage, which was young, not older. And so we, we should really be reeling it, reeling it on back to younger ages so that, so that people can, can be normal. Because that's, that's not the place, that's not the place where people should be acting out. Because things, things go sideways quickly when people are acting out sexually. Uh, things don't go well there, at all. <laughs> like, like that's that's that stuff can affect someone for their whole lifetime. And I do meet people in their thirties, forties, fifties, sixties who um, who never were able to quite get themselves back together from from uh, a natural inter- unnatural um, approach to sexuality as we have it now. It's quite unnatural the way it's set up. So, so, and this all can be remedied just by reeling back the age to a younger age for marriage. Yes, sir. Uh, what's the connection between this mysticism and mitzvot? What's the connection? The, um, the, the mitzvot are, the mitzvot are instructional and the mysticals, the mystical side is what it actually does. You understand? Meaning you have a mitzvah, let's say. So you have to put on tefillin, right? That's one of your mitzvahs. So that's instructional. Your job is to put on these black boxes. That are, now, mysticism is what do the black boxes actually do? So if you look at it like a hyperlink, the Torah says to put totofot. So you click on the hyperlink, it takes you to the law. The law explains how to make the black boxes, where to put them on and stuff. You click again on every single of those little laws, you get, you know, all the detailed laws of tefillin? Every one of those has a mystical reality to it. Even how you write a letter, every letter has to start with a yud, because that's the point of creation. Yud is the point of creation. So when you're creating with letters, which are really digits, whole world's made, this whole world's made of the letters. So you, when a scribe, when he writes a letter, he always starts with the yud. So that's a little law, mystical tradition about that law. So it's a double, every word in the Torah comes with a double click. One click is, how do I do this? Let's say it's a mitzvah. And the other click is, why do I do it? How and why? Which in, in Hebrew is la, ma, like Spanish, k, and then lema, lama, por k, what for? So everything has a ma and a lama, for what? And uh, sadly, you know, if, if I'm already ranting on sexuality, I'll rant on the other stuff too. Is, thank you. Um, sadly, the way our system is set up in study is people only learn what no one learns why you know they, they no one's studying the whys now there are some people who study the whys but very few people study the whys how many people really study the whys it's all what 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 you know can you imagine me being married to my wife and only doing what she wants and what she doesn't want like avoiding what she doesn't want and doing what she doesn't want can you imagine that without without really getting in touch with her on why you know, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Whereas when I'm in touch with the why, why all of this, so then it's like, it's amazing. Can you imagine, can you imagine me just following instructions and never saying I love you to my spouse? Or can you imagine saying I love you and never following instructions? <laughs> Meaning never doing, you know, doing exactly what she doesn't want and never doing what she does want. You know, can you imagine? And then telling her I love her, is that going anywhere? When I say I love you, is it going to mean anything to her? won't mean anything. So therefore you have to have mitzvahs, do's and don'ts, but you also have to have 
the, the, the intimacy of it. What's, what's going on here? What is this all about? What are the, what's the, that's the lama, that's the why. But, uh, but you guys, anyone here ever studied in yeshivas? Anyone here studied in yeshivas? Yeah? How much of the study Seder from 9 to 7 at night was spent on why? None of it. Zero. Zero. Excellent. So, and, and hence you can wind up in a relationship where it's not a relationship. Because would you call me being in a relationship with my wife if I only know what she wants and doesn't want? That's not a relationship. So, so now you wind up with thousands and thousands and thousands of kids who have no idea. They have no idea of their relationship. They only know what to do and what not to do. And, and, and you ready for this? I didn't even bring this up. There's a whole study. There's a study of God. Just like you're, you're going to study your spouse for all their inner essence. So there's study of God, which is beyond the mitzvahs. Now you're studying the secrets of, of who God is, as if you could ever know. You can never know, but how he runs creation, how he, create, how he created, that's called Masa Veracious. How he runs creation, that's called Masa Merkava. And no one ever studies this stuff. So like, so like, did you do the mitzvah when you did it? I'm wondering if you kept the instructions, but you didn't even understand the slightest bit about the being that you're doing it for. Or for whom, or why you're doing it. If you don't understand any of that stuff, did you do a mitzvah? Or did you just dot I's and cross T's? And I was so naive. I was so naive when I sent my son to a Hasidic yeshiva. I was like, oh, finally, they're going to teach him Hasidut, which is all about the wise. So he comes back his first day, and I couldn't wait for him to get home and sit down with him. Like, so tell me, like, which, you know, he's going to a Hasidic yeshiva. We're Hasidic. Like, don't I get, don't I get Hasidic, you know, Hasidic yeshiva. So he comes home, sit down at dinner table. I'm like, so tell us about all the Hasidic learning you did today. He says, so that was not in the schedule. Like, there's zero scheduled Hasidic learning in our, in the entire schedule. So I, I naively called the, uh, the dean of the school, and I said, uh, I'm sending my kid to a Hasidic school, and you don't teach Hasidut? Like, when's the Hasidut part? And, um, and he was just like, you know, earth to Yom Tov. You know, like, what is wrong with you, Yom Tov? So, anyway... I think we're a bit over time, so we didn't get much past the yud and the hay and the vav and the hay. I only have like, I only have about about five hundred hours on the names of God. So I hope you'll be around this year, and we'll just slowly move through each name of God. I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. But at least we got one of the names pretty in there, pretty in there, and uh, yeah, let's let's do it. Okay. Shalom, everyone. It was a pleasure, as usual. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.